Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to Kent Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Sherliff. This show is heard on WBCQ The Planet every Monday night at 7.30 Eastern Standard Time, broadcast out of the beautiful Monticello, Maine, in Arista County on WBCQ The Planet, heard worldwide on shortwave. Uh, the show is brought to you by Camp Constitution, which, among other things, uh, runs a week-long family camp, and it's just coming up. In a few days, uh, the show is uh, airing on July 4th, and camp starts July 10th, and there's still time to register. We're actually expecting the biggest turnout we've ever had, and we're pretty excited about that. And um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, please visit our website, campconstitution.net, where you could uh, look at our classes on YouTube and some of the other things we do over the course of the year some of the events we participate, some historical sites that we visit, little off-the-beaten-track type of things uh, or trail uh, type of things that you may not see anyplace else, and uh, also our camp bookstore. Um, if you'd like to become a sponsor that helps keep this show on the air and helps uh, do all the great things that we do, uh, please look into that. You can simply contact us via the website, uh, via the website. And um, we have lots of people who uh, donate uh, their time and their their um, their talent, but also in some cases their treasure, to make our all um, volunteer organization uh, keep it going. So, well, today is Independence Day, and it was interesting that a lot of people say. Oh, before I mention, talk about our topic of our show, I do want to mention uh, last week I had had hoped to have. Um, Lord Christopher Monckton from um, the Viscount of Brinchley on the show, and uh, there was some kind of a problem with on his end with the phone, but we rescheduled, and I'm hoping to I'll interview him during the week, and then it will air next Monday. Um, so that would be on the 11th of July, if everything goes well. And uh, Lord Christopher is uh, very, it was very instrumental and working to get England out of the European Union. He's also an expert on the so-called climate change or global warming uh, theory, conspiracy theory that these environmentalists um, have brought forth to the to us and how we're suffering under it. So I'd, I'd be really excited to have him on. So, but today, uh, July 4th, this is Independence Day, and a lot of people will come up to me and say, Happy July 4th. Well, we don't celebrate the day, July 4th. We celebrate that unique event that happened on July 4th, Independence Day. And uh, we published or we printed a wonderful essay, the Family Heritage Series, and uh, they signed for us. Now, this was written by Sally Humphreys back in 1973. If you visit our Scribd.com page for Camp Constitution, you'll find it's called the Family Heritage Series. And 
this was a series of articles. There, it was in the newsletter format. It come out once a week, and it was done for about a year, maybe a little more than a year. Actually, two years. So it was about a hundred, a hundred and fifteen or so of these. We got the permission from the uh, the people who held the copyright to reprint portions of it, and the, what we reprinted had about five or six articles dealing with the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. So I'm going to share some of this. Uh, one of the things we do at our information tables, in fact, um, today, uh, actually when this show was aired, it already happened, but we're, we're going to have a table in Boston Common, right in downtown Boston. And we ask people, how many names of the signers can you name? How many signers of the Declaration can you name? And, you know, people are in town, they're celebrating with the fireworks, they're enjoying the, um, you know, the, the freedoms that we have, they still have, although they're dwindling, uh, getting, dwindling down quite a bit. So we had to ask people, how many signers can you name? I'm here, we're celebrating an event that took place. We should at least have an idea of something about this kind of the declaration and the people who signed it. After all, they're the ones that made it happen. And most people that we meet probably can rattle off one or two, maybe three. Very few people can do more than five. Some cases they'll make reference to a George Washington who did not sign it. Now, he would have signed it had he not been appointed the general of the Continental Army. He was a member of the First Continental Congress, and there was a good chance he would have been a member of the second. <clears throat> so most people get Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, or some people do. Some people look at you like they have absolutely no idea. Not asking the starting lineup of the New York Yankees, the Boston Red Sox, or you know the California Angels, or whatever team that they're following, and they'll be able to rattle them all off and how much they make and how long they've been in the league and what colleges they went to and who they're married to and what their average is or their ERA and how many home runs they've hit and whatever. But they can't name people that made the people that made these sacrifices, put their lives on the line. So that's one of the things on our Camp Constitution motto, honoring the past. And we like to honor not just those that are well-known, but some of the lesser-known people, too. So one of my favorite uh, founding fathers, he's my second, next to George Washington, Washington being my favorite, uh, is John Adams. <clears throat> now, probably if I knew him, I, I thought he's a sort of a standoffish and a little bit, a bit of a prude. Uh, but I don't live in his time, uh, and I just admire him for his sacrifices. Uh, the fact is, he without him, there would have been no Declaration of Independence. He was a motivator behind it. He went to Europe. He went to Holland to borrow money from the Dutch, which is a no no easy no easy thing to do. And he was our first vice president. He was the author, the primary author of the Massachusetts Constitution. And while he was not at the Constitutional Convention that gave us um, that gave us the Constitution. Uh, he was definitely um, an instrumental factor uh, because a lot of the parts of the U.S. Constitution were lifted right from the Declaration. Um, I mean, sorry, a lot of the information from the U.S. Constitution or the wording came from the Massachusetts Constitution. Uh, and John Adams, um, anyway, John, and John Adams was the one who recommended Washington to lead the Continental Army. So a lot of good things were under John. And during the signing, uh, before the signing, before the actual vote to, for independence, 
he uh, I'm just going to read from this uh, uh, from this article. When John Adams, stern New Englander, stood before the Second Continental Congress to argue for independence from England, he put into words the thoughts that must have been in the minds of many of the supporters of the Declaration. And so he said, Sink or swim, live or die, survive or perish, thundered Adams. I give my hand and my heart to this vote. You and I indeed may rue it. We may not live to the time when this Declaration shall be made good. We may die, die colonists, die slaves, die it may be anonymously in on the scaffold be it so be it so if it be the pleasure of heaven that my country shall require the offering of my life the victim shall be ready but while i do live let me have a country or at least the hope of a country and that a free country sir before god i believe the hour has come my judgment approves this measure and my whole heart is in it all that I have and all that I am and all that I hope in this life, I am already here to stake upon it. And I leave off as I begin that live or die, survive or perish, I am for the declaration. It is my living sentiment, and by the blessings of God, it shall be my dying sentiment. Independence now and independence forever. Determination and boldness were not Adams alone. John Hancock, president of the Con uh, Congress, was a handsome young bachelor with a sizable fortune and a price of 500 pounds on his head. Uh, <clears throat> uh, if captured, Hancock would be tried in England for treason and probably hanged. No pardon was possible as it was for other, as it was for other rebels. Yet Hancock signed the Declaration on July 4th, 1776, the day it was approved by Congress without hesitation. In fact, Hancock's name as president of the Congress and Charles Thompson as secretary were the only signatures to appear on the original document. And the declaration was engrossed on parchment and signed by all 56 of the congressional delegate, delegates on August 2nd. Actually, there were 50 or 51, and then a few of them signed later on. I think that's, um, that's how it works. So, Anyway, Hancock joked about the large shaded letters of his signature. John Bull, meaning King George, he said, can read my name without spectacles and may now double his reward of 500 pounds in my head. That is my defiance. All members of Congress who signed for independence were marked by the British for special vengeance. So were their families, their properties, and their businesses. The danger was greatest in New York, where English troops were gathering for battle with Washington's fledgling army. The four, were, the four New York delegates, Francis Lewis, William Floyd, William, uh, Philip Livingston, and Lewis Morris, had millions of dollars at stake. They were all wealthy businessmen with luxurious townhouses and country estates. Putting the names to the declaration would mean, for all practical purposes, signing away their property and endangering their families. This they knew, and yet they signed. Suppose, okay, I'll kind of skip that. This was actually, this this was designed to read at the dinner table with your family members uh, and young people. Within a month, British troops were at the door of Francis Lewis, Francis Lewis's country estate, intent on hanging the signer who dared to defy England. Booted and spurred, they forced their way into the mansion, seized Mrs. Lewis, and began a sweep of destruction. Everything of value, silver, clocks, clothing, china, food and drink disappeared into British saddlebags. The furnishings that could not be carried away were mercilessly destroyed. All of Lewis's books and papers were piled in a heap and set afire. Mrs. Lewis, forced to watch the destruction of her property, 
was handled with brutality and contempt. And let me stop here for a minute here. Let's just say this. We think of the, the British as being these wonderful Christian gentlemen and that they wouldn't participate in this type of behavior. Uh, yet they did this. And uh, it was not unusual. There was some British that behaved properly uh, like the Christian gentlemen they were, but there was lots of, there was, there was massacres. There was lots of brutal examples of British behavior. Uh, the movie, um, oh, with uh, Mel Gibson, um, it was a little bit, they never burned a church down with people in it, but they burned churches and they caused a lot of damage and did a lot of harm. So there was a lot of ill will. Anyway, in prison, in a dingy, unheated room, she was not permitted to have a bed and for many weeks had no change of clothes. Even though General Washington arranged for her release in the prisoner exchange, her health had been broken and she died soon after. When Lewis returned to his estate after the war, nothing remained but rubble. The other New York signers also fared badly. Although the families of William Floyd and Lewis Morris escaped before the British arrived, their estates were looted, the houses stripped of everything, farm tools and livestock stolen, and timberlands raised. So they burnt, burnt the forest, burnt the trees. All of Morris's servants and tenants were driven from their homes, and the Floyd estate, used as British headquarters, was left in shambles. Morris, deprived of his property and income, left Congress and joined Washington's army, serving as a militia brigadier. Draper's sons also served as officers, all with distinction. After the war, Morris used what remained of his property and fortune to pay his private debts to British citizens, and that he felt morally obligated to despite the war. Philip Livingston had already given up much of his fortune before the signing of the Declaration. His business was imports, the buying and selling of British goods. When the colonists began to boycott British-made clothing, tea, and furnishings, Livingston gave his full support and lost much of his income. A similar situation today would be owning a fruit and vegetable and market, knowing the lettuce and grapes were when, were, we were selling would not put money into the pockets of Cesar Chavez. Now, keep in mind, this was written in 1973. Communist controlled labor union. Many patriotic customers would refuse to buy these products, and we would lose their business. We could continue selling lettuce and grapes to people who didn't know or care where they came from, or we could refuse to sell them and take a loss in income. Uh, in the fall of 1776, when the defeated American army was driven from New York, all of Livingston's businesses properties were confiscated. His mansion on Dick Street was turned into a British barracks. His estate on Brooklyn Heights was made into a Royal Naval Hospital. In the months that followed, he sold the properties that he owed in other parts of the state to maintain the credit of the United States. Two years later, in 1778, he died, depleted of income and separated from his family. So he, these people were serious when they said that uh, they put their lives their fortunes, and their sacred honor. How many people today have even such concepts? They mock at such concepts, many people today. Thomas Nelson, Jr. of Virginia, was another of the wealthy merchants who did not hesitate to give whatever was required in the fight for independence. In 1775, when the British Navy threatened to bombard Yorktown, Nelson had property and family in the target area and vast sums of money in English banks. But his reaction to the threat was bold and decisive. Let my trade perish, he thundered to the delegates of the House of Purchases. I call God to witness that if any British troops are landed in the county of York, of which I am lieutenant, I will wait no orders, but will summon the militia and drive the invaders into the sea. Nelson meant what he said in October of 1781, when the tide of the war turned in America's favor. The British were cornered in the Yorktown 
uh, under bombardment from 70 colonial cannons. Nelson, knowing that the English were headquartered in his home, watched from the American lines as the firing began in his own neighborhood. Why'd you spare my house, he demanded of a gunner. Out of respect to you, sir, the soldier replied. Give me the cannon. Nelson ordered, he directed the fire upon his own stately dwelling. Before the war, Nelson had been one of the richest men in Virginia. When it was over, his income was one of the most modest. In 1778, he raised a company of Virginia cavalry to fight in Pennsylvania. He was its commander and banker, most of the funds for its food, uniforms, and ammunition coming out of his own pocket. In addition, he paid the bills for two other regiments, one in York and one in Williamsburg. He stripped his plantation of fine hunting and carriage horses to give to the army, feed hungry soldiers from his own granary, and neglected his tobacco crops to send slaves and tenants to harvest the crops of small farmers who were serving the militia and had no hired help. When money was desperately short, Nelson raised $2 million almost overnight by offering his own properties as a guarantee for the loans. Keep in mind, $2 million, that was poor. I mean, that's a, a ridiculous sum uh, <clears throat> back then. Uh, these he forfeited when the loans came due. His government never reimbursed him. At war's end, his health broken and fortune gone, Nelson retired to a small house in Hanover County, Virginia, with his wife and children. He died eight years later. Virtually all of the scientists would have been better off financially and personally if they never had been in Congress. Of the 56 who pledged their lives, their fortunes, and sacred honor for independence, nine died of wounds or hardship during the war. Five were captured and imprisoned, sometimes only treated. The wives, sons, and daughters of others were killed, jailed, mistreated, and left penniless. The houses of 12 signers were burned to the ground. 17 lost everything they owned. One was driven from his wife's deathbed. Every signer was proclaimed a traitor, and each was hunted by the British. Most were, at one time or another, barred from their families or homes. Most were offered bribes, pardons, rewards, or the release of loved ones if they would break their pledged word or take the king's protection. But no sign had defected or changed his stand through the darkest hour. What did their acts of sacrifice and courage gain? In the end, honor remained and a new nation was born. That was all they asked. So um, this is um, excellent. There's a lot of good little articles like this. Um, and I want to mention there is a book, um, Lives of the Sinus, which was uh, originally published in 1848. And it's, uh, it's available through a group called um, Ball Builders on, on Amazon. And it has a brief biographical sketch of the signers of the Declaration. And it's also on Google Books, public domain, so it's easily anybody can get a look at it. I have a little book that I found in my travels, the Declaration of Independence, Illustrated Stories of Its Adoption and of Its Signers, Lives of Washington of the Pages of the Revolution. And it was published, I think, probably in the early 1900s. Uh, New York City, and it has uh, the famous painting, I think it was Jonathan Trumbull, of the signing. Now, it's interesting, it, it, the signing, it wasn't exactly uh, accurate. There was a lot of artistic license, but that was the way it was in those days. He didn't have cameras, and many of the things done to it were years later. But this little book has some, a lot of great history, and it has a little biographical sketch of the various signers. And again, some of them aren't as well-known as others. One of them uh, is uh, someone who's a bit of intriguing, Elbridge Jerry. Now, we think of Elbridge Jerry, uh, people, who, who's that guy? Well, he's actually a vice president. Um, he was um, 
the term gerrymand that we hear today when it comes to redistricting a, uh, a, a given area to, to the party in power wants to be able to make it easier for their people to get reelected, they may legally gerrymand a district, and that's where the word comes from. So Elvis Jerry was born in Marblehead, Massachusetts, July 17, 1744. A Harvard graduate, actually there were Harvard graduates that uh, signed the Declaration of Independence. I would imagine you probably couldn't get one Harvard graduate, well, maybe one, maybe Tom Woods, uh, Edward Vieira. But anybody coming from Harvard today, there would be very few that would even think about it. They'd signed the Communist Manifesto. They'd signed the UN, a UN treaty. They'd sign, send, they signed NAFTA, all these other uh, trade agreements, but they wouldn't sign something like the Declaration of Independence because they detested the idea of, of, of sovereignty. Anyway, Terry was elected to the Continental Congress in 1776, where he continued with few intermissions for nine years. He was appointed one of the committee to visit Washington Valley Forge. Up to the time of his organization of the Treasury Board in 1780, he was generally chairman of the Committee of the Treasury, and in the later part of 1779, he was one of the delegates to Philadelphia for the purpose of devising some correction for the, for the bad condition of the currency. Upon his retirement from Congress, he was chosen a delegate to the convention, which met in Philadelphia in 1787, to frame the Constitution. And he didn't sign it. He, uh, he later embraced it, but at that time he had some reservations about it and did not sign the Constitution. And uh, he actually later became vice president, and he died. He was the first vice president to die in office in uh, November 23, 1814. So that's, um, it was actually eight foreign, um, eight people born in other countries, other countries, England, Ireland, Wales, so it wasn't like they were from Guam or the Dorian, they were all from English-speaking uh, countries. Uh, let me see, Roger Sherman, now here's a favorite. Massachusetts, I was telling people Massachusetts had seven, uh, seven signers that were born in Massachusetts, there's actually nine, they forgot Benjamin Franklin, um, and there was also William Hooper from North Carolina, who was not only a Harvard graduate, but also born in Boston, settled down in North Carolina. But Roger Sherman, he was a very interesting man. He was born in Newton, Massachusetts, just a little bit, um, just outside of Boston. April 19th, that was a good day to be born, 1721. Uh, he was a, in his early life, he was a shoemaker, and after the death of his father, he supported his mother and several young children in industry. Uh, in 1743, he joined an elder brother in keeping a small store in New Milford, Connecticut. The next year, was appointed county surveyor. Meanwhile, he studied law and was admitted to the bar in 1754. He was elected to the Connecticut Assembly several times. In 1759, became a judge of the Court of Common Pleas. In 1774, he was chosen a delegate to the first Continental Congress and continued in Congress until his death, at which time he was in the United, he was in the United States Senate. Uh, Sherman was one of the com uh, was one of the committee appointed to draft the Declaration of Independence. From 1784 until his death, he was mayor of New Haven and was chiefly instrumental in securing the ratification of the National Constitution by Connecticut. He was one of the most useful men of his time. Jefferson declared that he never said a foolish thing in his life. He died in uh, 1793. Now, Roger Sherman, he was um, he signed the Declaration of Independence. He signed. The Articles of Confederation, he was a preside the Constitution. And there was a, a fourth document that uh, I think it was the document that came out of the first Continental, first Continental Congress. I can't remember what it was called offhand. 
So he was quite an influential man, although not today, not a household name, uh, as he should be. Uh, also, Roger Sherman was very much against um, paper money, and he wrote uh, on the subject uh, as an authority on the need to keep money. Uh, money should be uh, gold and silver, not paper. Uh, there was another, Benjamin Rush. He's a, Benjamin Rush was, um, was uh, from Pennsylvania, and he was a doctor. And he actually was not one of the, he wasn't at the, uh, wasn't a member of the convention of Congress when the declaration was approved. But let me, he was quite a brilliant man. Benjamin Rush was born near Philadelphia December 24, 1745 and was descended from one of Cromwell's officers who came to America. He studied medicine in Edinburgh, London, and Paris, became one of the most eminent physicians of his time, and filled professional chairs. And by the way, when there was a smallpox um, uh, outbreak um, in, in Philadelphia, he stayed. Where most people were leaving, he stayed, and he saved the lives of thousands of people. And it was just incredible. Uh, so uh, he was a surgeon to the Pennsylvania Navy and for the military hospitals for which services he would take no pay. And uh, he was a member of the Pennsylvania Convention, which ratified the United States Constitution frame one for the state. So um, Dr. Rush beheld um, the, college, the college was merged in the University of Pennsylvania. Now, interesting um, that Dr. Benjamin Rush, along with Martha Washington founded uh, hospitals that treated the alcoholics uh, from the Revolutionary War, the veterans. And uh, there was the la- there was one surviving hospital, the oldest hospital probably in the world. Uh, it was in Boston, the Jamaica Plain section of Boston. It was in the early 1980s when it closed its doors. And that was a fact made known to me by my friend, Dr. Kishore, who's been a guest here before um, on the show. And then we have, of course, Benjamin Franklin. Now, Benjamin Franklin was born in Boston, and uh, he didn't make his fame and fortune in Boston. He could have. He was, and you, if you visit the Granary Burial Ground, his parents are buried there. He's buried in Philadelphia. He entered a printing office there, and within a few years, founded the Philadelphia Gazette and became world-renowned as the publisher of Poor Richard's Almanac. He assisted in the establishment of many philanthropic, uh, philanthropic and educational enterprises of great local importance. He spent many years in the diplomatic service of the colonies. He made a journey to England in 1757 with a petition to the king praying that the Penn proprietary estates be taxed for the defense of the province. And two years later, he appeared again at the court of England imploring to repeal the Stamp Act. He served on many of the important committees of the Congress of 1776, and it was one of the five who drew up the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, it was uh, John Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and the fourth, I can't think of the fourth, uh, the fifth. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson um, was obviously one of the one of the well-known founders, was the key person behind writing the Declaration of Independence. There was a committee of five. John Adams was there. John Adams said, look, it, no one likes me. Uh, you write it. And then they had a committee of the whole and go over it. They took some things out, especially the things on the slave trade. When we had a couple of states that engaged in the slave trade, didn't think it would fit too well with uh, some of the other folks, so they kind of left that out. Anyway, uh, he was also at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. 
So uh, he died at the age of 79 years of age in 1790. Well, I'm sorry, no, he was older than that. He died. He was the oldest member of the Constitution Convention. So he was, uh, uh, of course, a, a very well-known. Uh, let me think of some here that. Uh, oh, let's see. Here's one that I'd like to talk about. If you're a coin uh, collector and you have the state quarters, you would see uh, the first state quarter, which is Delaware, the first state, first state to ratify the Constitution, U.S. Uh, uh, you'll see a, a man on a horseback. Well, that's Caesar Rodney. And Caesar Rodney, uh, when I was, I was visiting Dover, Delaware a few years ago, visiting the state house to deliver information on an important issue at the time, and there was a little pamphlet I picked up, and it was the Italian-American Society honoring Caesar Rodney. And I thought, well, you know, why would they single him out, I guess, because he's from Delaware. But actually, he has some Italian ancestry. His mother was Italian. So that's where the hunt for word Caesar. So we can say that uh, one of the signers uh, was a Paisan. I asked some of my Italian friends, and they're delighted to hear that. They didn't, a lot of them don't know that um, uh, about Caesar. But <clears throat> Caesar had um, face cancer. And he had to ride in terrible weather, a thunderstorm, to get to the Continental Congress to cast a vote. You see, states would vote uh, as a state, so every state had one vote. So you had to have, but it didn't have to be unanimous, but the delegates had to be majority. There were three delegates from uh, Delaware, uh, and one of one of them, there were two at the at the that uh, was going on at the convention uh, at the um, at Congress. Caesar had to be the decisive vote, so he risked his uh, he risked his health to ride through this terrible weather, and that's why you see him on the horse. And um, he voted for independence. So Delaware was one of the states, obviously, that adopted. Um, he returned to Delaware in 1777. Rodney was chosen judge of the Admiralty the same year, having refused the appointment of judge of the newly organized court of Delaware. He collected troops to prepare the British for joining their fleet, and in September 1777 was appointed Major General of the Militia. He was elected to a delegate to the Continental Congress. They met in Philadelphia uh, July 2nd, 1778, but did not take his seat, having that year been elected president of a Delaware state, in which capacity served until 1782. He died of cancer June 26, 1784. Uh, that's just a few of the people. I mean, there's so many, just such rich history. And I really encourage Americans, even if you're not an American, learn about these great men. They weren't perfect. They weren't. They they had their flaws, like all men do. But I would say that people talk about the greatest generation, World War II era, and my dad was one of them. I said, no, the greatest generation was the generation that gave us the Declaration of Independence. And these 56 men need to be uh, remembered for what they honored for what they do. So. Thank you for listening, and I want to close by saying let's pray that we have many, many more Independence Days, that there will be a, a revival in the land, and the whole world, but especially the United States, and that people will rise up, uh, not in the revolutionary to you know, do violence or what have you, but will take the reins of government back and restore this once great land. Thank you for listening. God bless. You've listened to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtliff.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.